Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, and we've got an awesome podcast coming up here uh, with Rob Wilson from shiftadapt.com. We talk all about uh, the new sexy topic of breathing. I'm using new in my air quotes here. Um, Rob is a wealth of knowledge. I first went to the course uh, he'd helped develop with uh, Brian McKenzie called The Art of Breath. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, they've got some really great stuff. So we talked all about uh, breathing, CO2 versus oxygen, uh, nasal breathing, what are some good on-ramps uh, for you to do. And we even get into a little bit of anti-fragility, kind of uh, mental resilience, and of course even chat a little bit about learning new skills and of course kiteboarding at the end. Um, so this podcast is brought to you by The Flex Diet. Go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com, and there you'll be able to get on the newsletter. So as soon as it's open for the next round, you'll be one of the first people to be able to enroll. So the Flex Diet is eight different interventions on nutrition and recovery, everything from protein, carbohydrates, uh, intermittent fasting, keto, how to use fats, um, in this uh, program, we even talked about how I set up the use of carbohydrates with a use stress and a, a distress model. Uh, so go to www.flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Thank you so much, and check this out with my man, Rob Wilson. Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, Flex Diet Podcast, with my buddy, Rob Wilson. How are you today, sir? Doing well. Thank you. Good. We pulled you out of quarantine from the East Coast there to chat all about uh, breathing, which is new and sexy now, which <laughs> I never would have thought that would have happened, but I'm happy. <laughs> I know. New and sexy. It just took 5,000 years. Yeah. So <laughs> for people who may not know you, would uh, give them a little bit of background on what you do. Sure. Um, I am the co-creator of the Art of Breath uh, seminar series that's with uh, Brian McKenzie, who some of your listeners may be familiar with. A uh, couple, be- he has a couple bestsellers. He's an old school CrossFit endurance yeah. founder, and uh, he kind of broke the mold on how people should be thinking about endurance training. Um, prior to my art of breath and thinking about breathing life, though, my most of my formal training is actually in manual therapy. So. I started in orthopedics and pain relief, uh, moved into performance scenarios. I've been a strength and conditioning coach in addition to that for, gosh, if I age myself, almost 20 years. <laughs> and uh, and so having those two sides of the coin, I really wanted to see, you know, what's the, what's the common denominator where athletes have access points to becoming as adaptable as possible. And um, through my own personal experience uh, of, of varying kinds, which we can get into if it's appropriate, um, I came sort of back into breath work. Um, and Brian and I have a mutual friend in uh, Dr. Kelly Storette. Yes. Um, and so Kelly was a mentor of mine, you know, earlier in my career. And I, I worked for Kelly for a while. And uh, when I started going down this deep rabbit hole of breathing, he was like, man, you got to talk to Brian, <laughs> and, and we hit it off, and the rest is history. And now, you know, we have multiple seminars. We have a 
pretty significant uh, virtual education platform, um, and uh, we've been around the world a few times teaching, so it's been pretty rad. Cool. And for timeline purposes, when was it that you first met Brian, for people listening in, to get an idea of time? 2016? Okay. Yeah, it's about four-ish years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I took yeah. the Art of Breath course when you guys were here, when they were, of course, we're recording this now when live seminars are meh, maybe, maybe not so much going on yeah. right now, but... <laughs> You're real brave and you want to roll the dice? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple that, yeah, well, we'll leave it at that. It's very, very small and is definitely not what it was before, but right. um, back in the day, we sound like old people talking now. Um, I took your course when it was here in Minnesota, and it was it was really good, and it was awesome to to see it. And even more exciting for me was that, wow, you can do a whole seminar just on breathing, and it's obviously useful. It's incredibly, I think, a good adjunct to anyone, and people attend it now, which is amazing. I think if you would have tried <laughs> to do something like that maybe 10, 15 years ago, and there's various groups and pockets that have been doing it for a while, it mm-hmm. just wasn't wasn't a thing. So it was cool to see that there's people actually attending and asking for more information on this. So you know, sometimes that you know you've been around in the industry for quite a while too. That all the old stuff that comes back around, you just like put your hands in your head and go, "Oh God, what is this? Like boron's a supplement again now? Or are we gonna have like vanadium sulfate again?" But it's cool to see like stuff like breathing come back around and it's new and a lot more accessible than it was, which is a good thing. It is, and it's like anything else. I think um, as we get better at putting the proper context around why something is important. Yeah. So I, for me, I always feel like the burden of importance is always on the educator. So if you're an educator, if people seem um, there's if they seem a little bit disinterested, then it, then that's a signal that you have to reframe the way you're explaining something. Um, if you really feel like it has fundamental importance. But, you know, let's face it, yoga, tai chi, and various, you know, martial arts and health practices have had frameworks around this stuff. I mean, for literally thousands of years. Yeah. Um, it's just, I think a lot of times people have trouble accepting something like breath work because it seems so obvious. Like, it's just like really breathing. And, it, and you know what? A lot of times fundamentals in anything like i'm dr mike i'm sure you get questions like this where people like the first thing they jump to is what supplements should i take yeah <laughs> and you're like well how about do you sleep do you drink water do you eat real food like let's get the like the fundamental boxes checked first and then we can talk about what to add but let's make sure there's not any crap in there first yeah. that's just because they'll just fight each other right and so that's the thing everybody wants to skip to the fancy stuff and not go, okay, what are the basics here? And I think breathing fits into some of the like like the fundamental aspects of the way we think about our health. Um, not even just like high performance, but just fundamental components of being a healthy person. Um, that that's a, a really important bullet, a really important box that you have to check. Just like nutrition just like sleep, just like having good relationships with your peers. Those are all really important aspects of just being a healthy human. Um, so, 
Yeah, I remember asking one of the <clears throat> many years ago. Oh God, two thousand four. One of the top uh, kettlebell instructors, a good buddy of mine at the time, who will remain nameless. I won't throw him under the bus, but uh, I asked him, I said, "Hey, what, what do you think about like breathing and these different techniques and stuff?" Because I was trying to, you know, at that time, just try to figure stuff out. And he's like, um, "You're upright. You're breathing. You're good. Don't worry about it." And I was like, "Okay, I kind of get that." But then, the more I've kind of looked at it, and I want your thoughts on this too, is that. The more essential something is for survival, the more ways your body just absolutely has to figure that shit out, right? No one just dies because they go, eh, you know, I, didn't, I forgot to breathe. I, my body didn't really figure it out, you know? And you yeah. look at, like, disease progressions like COPD where they actually have physical changes to the rib cage and their structure because of the disease and their breathing is very labored and eventually it causes them issues for sure. But acutely, their brain and body has still figured it out, right? So what are your thoughts about that as a framework? Well, I think, I mean, I definitely, you know, at least in the way that I look at things and the way that we tend to look at things as a team is we look at them from an evolutionary perspective, right? Because I'm not saying evolution as we see it now is the end-all, be-all of everything. It's just what we have the most evidence for. It's a lens to view stuff through. It's, it's a lens. And then uh, in addition to that, the survival heart hierarchy, because that's how your central nervous system deals with information, right? Your brainstem, your limbic system, your prefrontal cortex, and the way it prioritizes needs in the internal and external environment are based on those hierarchical systems. To, to your kettlebell story, I, I heard I have heard similar things both as a practitioner and just as an athlete. Hey, I'm doing this intense activity. How should I breathe? Hey, just let it happen. It'll mm-hmm. take care of itself. Well, that is true up to a point. And what I always say, and something that's become a bit of a mantra for me, is your body is self-regulating, but it's not self-optimizing. Mm, I like that. Right? And because if it was self-optimizing, we would not need to train anything at all yeah maybe training, good to go. that's right training of any kind is literally the purposeful interception of one's own physiology mm, i like that that's good so so i think that gives an argument in total for taking over anything otherwise just go do the stuff right it would be good enough to prepare for sport to just go play the sport and we know that while that's a crucial part of preparing for a sport, strength and conditioning to prepare the body to uh, be adaptable to increases in stress load, make it easier to go play and prepare for sport. Everybody who trains people or works with athletes, that's an obvious statement. So why would breathing fall categorically in a different way? It's just that people really don't know how to approach it systematically especially inside performance. And I think what happens is it gets sort of pushed away with woo-woo crap. Um, and, you know, there's some justification for that, uh, for that prejudice, I think. Um, but, yeah, I think coming from a survival mechanism is really important um, because, just to put it quite simply, you can go weeks without food, days without water, but only minutes without air. And, and that's not only because, oh, if you don't have oxygen, you'll die. 
That's because your physiology is keeping very strict track of your global pH all the mm -hmm. time. And pH is a, an essential component of all metabolic processes, right? As, as you, I don't have to tell you, right, that if your pH isn't in the certain windows, then very quickly um, biochemical activity starts to go awry. And your body will eventually shut you down to self-organize, right? And we call that a coma. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> it'll be coma, death. Those are the those are the order of operations when your pH. You have some preliminary symptoms depending on which direction the pH goes, whether it's more acidic or more alkaline. Then if it stays that way too long, you go night night. And if it stays that way too long again, then you die. Right? And so you have a very finite range. You know, it's like seven point four to seven point six pH that your body allows for and the easiest real-time way that it deals with that is through respiration and you see in people who have metabolic dysfunction even genetically predispositions to metabolic dysfunction like type 1 diabetes that they almost always have a concurrent respiration problem mm. they over breathe because their respiration system is trying to manage their inability to uh deal with blood sugar levels properly right um so it has this really interesting component on the disease level um that there's plenty of research there's a ton of literature to support that it's just all siloed right if you if you look in this little community there's research about you know breathing and metabolics and then if you go into like the neuroscience of sleep there's whole things about sleep apnea and how it contributes to you know, heart disease and cardiovascular dysfunction. And then you go over to the anxiety silo. Oh, yeah, we know that breathing dysfunction, <laughs> you know, goes hand in hand with anxiety. And then it's like, why don't you guys talk to each other? And that's what's really starting to happen. It's people are like, wait a second. What's really cool about breathing is you can take agency over that function, mm -hmm. right? And that going back, kind of taking back to that survival component of all of those most fundamental brainstem, you know, lizard brain functions, breathing, you know, breathing, heart rate, respiration, blood pressure. The only one that you can make a conscious decision to change is your respiration. And it will literally interrupt feedback loops in your physiology that you don't want. And that's a really powerful tool to have at your disposal anytime you want. Yeah, it's definitely fascinating. It's one of the areas I've spent the last, oh man, probably going on five or six years now looking at is uh, physiologic flexibility, right? So what are those like homeostatic regulators that your body just, come hell or high water, it has to have a fine range and control over that. And obviously pH is one of them. Uh, temperature is another big one in terms of core body temperature. And then I would say fuel systems, maybe glucose uh, is probably the, the third one. And I've always been interested in what are the intersections of all of those three, and then what are the levers that you can pull to manipulate the system? And the first one that comes to mind is breathing. It's exactly what you said. Breathing will intersect almost all of them to some uh, degree, especially pH is probably the most uh, related, but it's intersecting all of them. And exactly what you said, it's something we can have inner we can do something with it but we don't have to 
It's almost like blinking. There's very few bodily functions where, oh, I, I just forgot about it. I'm breathing fine. Oh, I want to do something. I can change it. So now I can get conscious control over it and kind of go. It's like the cruise control on your car, kind of. Or like the exactly. old, the new ones, the auto driving. You know, it's like, oh, I can take control of the wheel if I want. But if I forget, oh, I can let the computer kind of drive it for a while. And I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to put it in the ditch. <laughs> yeah. and, and what's cool, though, is that as you expand your skill in breathing the autopilot actually gets better so yes. we have a we have a learning autopilot so it'd be like you know if you started your if you had a tesla a self-driving tesla and as you became a better driver the car got better too yeah that that's what we have inside of this super intelligent you know meat computer that we <laughs> operate while we're here alive on earth that it will learn with us based on based on inputs we have and and so the way that we kind of start to break things down is you know in terms of um, in terms of thinking about stress on the system and widening and actually uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel first used this term is like the window of tolerance right mm. what's how much stress can I handle and still be adaptable I'm a big fan of uh, the term anti fragility. Yes, me too. It's just like growing from chaos, disorder, and disruption. And um, I think the term resilience gets used a lot, but resilience means how much can I take and then return to normal. Yep. Right? But anti-fragility means what stress can I incur and then become better as a result of, right? And so I think, you know, breathing can be a really strong component in helping us be more anti-fragile um, because it can help create uh, a more potently self-learning system where you get this deep connection with your fundamental physiology that's really difficult to tune into otherwise. And really interestingly, I like that you brought up um, your three were pH, temperature, and then uh, energy derivative. Yeah. Right? And so where breath intersects with each of those, obviously we talked about pH a little bit already. Temperature, we know that you know, thermodynamics um, has a fundamental thermodynamics and energy are really closely tied together. Like the overlap is it's pretty fundamental, right? And the way that our body uses energy has a strong impact on our ability to to generate heat, right? And and, and modulate our uh, homeostatic temperature regulation. And what's really interesting is that's directly related to carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. right? how much carbon dioxide is being generated in the system. And anybody who's ever done any reduced breathing frequency work like we did at the seminar, so you're doing work but you're not allowing yourself to auto-regulate by opening your mouth, you get hot really fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you right? sweat like crazy. Sweat like crazy. <laughs> and that's because the system is offloaded. It's the metabolic up uptick acutely goes really high because you're not <sighs> – offloading that sort of uh, byproduct, right? I, I have the old school habit of saying waste product. Yeah, I'm trying to get that out of my vocab too, so I, yeah. I got too many years of it though. <laughs> too, those old textbooks, right? Yeah. But it's really a byproduct. We need CO2. Um, but then there's also the energy component. And one thing that's really cool that um, you know we have some some strong evidence for is even like the simple act of opening your mouth while you're doing 
not even really hard work, normal work, because of that offload of carbon dioxide, you actually start to change what energy system your body is using. Yep. Right? And so we know like you're never really all anaerobic, all aerobic. They're always sort of all the energy systems are sort of playing with each other. The way the foods that you eat have a huge diff, have, make a huge effect on um, how your body prioritizes if it's fat burning, sugar burning, et cetera, right? Um, but literally the way that we choose to respirate or if we don't choose to respirate can tip us into less effective energy systems um, than if we keep our mouth closed, for example, and learn how to work hard breathing through the nose. You can become far more efficient of a fat burner because it's true aerobic work, right? Yeah, so. that's that's one thing I'm actually going to do. I I'm one of those goons, so I bought a I've had a Moxie system for quite a while. So people are listening. It's muscle oxygenation. This little sensor you stick over a muscle and it looks at how well you're using oxygen, which is directly related to fuels. What you were talking about, and then I have a metabolic card also, which I used in a lab quite a bit. Now they have portable ones. So one of the little experiments I'm in the process of doing, and you guys have probably done this already, exactly what you were saying is if I do a set workload and just breathe through my nose and you know, trying to quantify it by heart rate, which isn't the best, but it gets you approximate, um, and then do the same thing breathing through my mouth, um, see what the, the difference is between those two, right? Because you could go to the level of even the autonomic nervous system and argue that if I'm breathing more through my mouth, that's probably that that's a little bit more of a stressor to my body. Right? I've got a lot of accessory muscle work coming from my neck, other things like that. And we know that as you get more stressed, right, you're going to go more anaerobic, so to speak. You're going to use more carbohydrates. If you go the opposite of that, you're going to be using more fat. So even through exactly. the nervous system, you can make an argument that there's also a reason for that, too. Right. And that kind of dips into the Charlie Francis model. Yeah. Right of green, yellow, red, and you know if you're huffing and puffing through the mouth and you become more sympathetic, you're going to stay in that yellow zone longer than you need to, and you're going to have these excess hydrogen ions floating around the system, interfering with muscle contractions and irritating sensitive nerve endings, and really just annoying the bejesus out of your body in general. Yeah. Right. Um, and what's really cool is that. Those hydrogen ions, they're looking for something to attach to. And if you're really efficient aerobically, because you've been training properly, then those, that, uh, those oxygen molecules, they'll, they look for hydrogen, and then it makes water, and then it goes through the electron transport chain, and you actually will make more ATP, and you'll actually downshift into aerobic systems better when you do need to... Uh, go into those kind of more harsh lactate systems. So the energy system stuff is like my nerd tunnel. Nice. So I, I love, I love <laughs> talking about that stuff. And we actually developed a whole like gear system of breathing because one thing you tend to find is that there are sort of these camp. There's just like anything else. Human beings love to have a tribe. Yes. And so it's like we have the puff and puff through your mouth and work hard and no matter what, just get it done tribe. Mm -hmm. And then you have, Another tribe, which is like low and slow, no matter what. And it's like, I'm sorry, human beings, <laughs> entire spectrum of behavior that we have to account for. This is one of the reasons I really like the idea of metabolic flexibility, too. Yeah. It's like, hey, no, we're only going to be keto. 
We're only going to be this way. We're only going to be that way. And it's like, well, we have this huge range of adaptability. Why wouldn't you want to be able to use the fuel source that's available as effectively as possible in order to get done what you need to do right then? Like, would it be great if all environments were always controlled and we could, you know, get um, fine tune every little detail like a little Ferrari? Yeah, but I'd kind of rather be like a Mack truck, you know, where yeah. like if a, if a little dirt gets in the gas tank, <laughs> you can still get the job done. Um, so, so to that effect, with breathing, what we wanted to do was not say like we're always going to live on this side, we're always going to live on this side, but to know where and when and to be a conscious participant. And we called it gears because kind of interesting you use the car um, analogy is most of us, most of the time, we're just driving on automatic, right? The system self-regulates, like we said earlier, I'm doing some hard work, and whatever happens just sort of happens. And when you learn this gear system that we have, you can decide to make it manual and go, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some breaths to shift up or down depending on what I want. And then, you know, go back to let it let it go on autopilot. Like I'm not walking around every moment of my day monitoring all 26,000 breaths per day. <laughs> it's just like before we got on today, I was like, I'm going to take three minutes and do some breathing stuff and just just dial it in so that I can have a really focused and attentive conversation with you. But before that, you know, I was answering emails and I wasn't like counting breaths or anything weird <laughs> just letting the system do its job right um so it's kind of like if you're somebody who deadlifts to make your back stronger every time you tie your shoes you don't like make your spine perfectly stiff and then do like a perfect hinge because it's weird like your spine is supposed only to only weird fitness people stuff. do that only weird <laughs> fitness people do that. exactly it's not a normal thing and so and this kind of goes to this you know, this whole point in general is that the great power of human beings as an animal is that we're super adaptable. Yeah. So, so we want to engage in behaviors that continuously make us more and more adaptable, not less and less adaptable and go, you have to live inside this little box, right? Where, you know, you only eat this, you only breathe like this, you only do this. And I think that's really counterproductive, um, especially since we have such little control over environmental input. You know, so yeah, I think that way is you could almost make an argument that if you're training the elite of the elite, the 0.1% of the 0.1% of the world who can absolutely control their environment, it's kind of like the Ferrari, right? Yeah, I'm trying to get every little last bit of performance out, but oh boy, if I screw up at all, I, I may blow the whole engine possibly, you know. But for the vast majority of people, I think the inverse of that is exactly what you were saying. You can get to very high levels of performance without having to try to sacrifice your health or the ability to be adaptable. So you can be dropped off in different environments and regulate heat. You can you know, regulate food intake. You can regulate your emotions. Maybe you have a tool set using breathing to help you in that process. To me, that's much more useful and also more exciting just to live that way too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, one thing that I have learned from working with, you know, elite performers of, of many kinds is that at the very, very pinnacle of elite, often 
those are fragile states of being. Yeah. And I don't mean that, you know, those people aren't tough or anything. Yeah, yeah. Like some of those people are incredibly tough folks mentally and physically, but it's a fragile state of being where everything around you has to be controlled, who you talk to, you know, you, you know, this many days before you perform, you know, there's all these superstitions. Well, I don't have sex this many days. I can't be around my wife or girlfriend. I don't eat this certain stuff. If I do, it'll affect my weight. I got to make sure that I have a certain kind of uh, skate. I have to do that. You know, it's like mm -hmm. all these parameters that sort of like tighten life so much. And for some of those folks, if one little thing throws the throws a wrench in there, it's like a 90 degree turn yeah. um, on, on what's possible. And I think sometimes um, it can create some emotional fragility um, when life throws a monkey wrench in there. Um, as it almost always does. Yeah. It's like, man, I'm, I forgot how to deal with this stuff, you know, because I'm so used to the environment being like so regimented. Um, and so one thing is that a lot of really, really elite performers post career have a really Oof, hard time hard. to yeah. normal stuff, you know, cause they just don't like their normal way of dealing with the world is is altered forever. Yeah. Um, so it's a really, yeah. it's an interesting thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't work with a lot of elite people, but you know, I've worked with just a handful here and there. And usually I'm working with them more in the off season. And my goal then is to actually do what you said. I'm actually trying to throw them like controlled monkey wrenches. It's like, you know, you got a year or possibly three years, depending upon what athlete, what cycle they're on. It's like, you know, I'm not going to injure them, but I may screw up their training for a couple of days if I get it wrong, but that's okay. You know, we got, we got time. We're going to be all right. You know, cause I want them to have like kind of that big, huge base of the pyramid, a good aerobic engine to be able to handle different stressors. I try to have somewhat of a normal life for a little while, you know, and then as it gets closer, yep, you're going to kind of keep stepping up to the top of the pyramid. And if it's, you know, Olympic athlete, you're maybe doing one race that you've been training four years of your life for. Yeah. All those little tiny things are going to make a difference. But I think if you built up that resiliency and that anti-fragility as your base, because you know, like you can't control everything. Like, and I tell athletes, like something is going to get fucked up. Something is going to go wrong. Like something is going to happen. It's just, it's probably going to happen. Right. So can we, kind of practice for this a little bit in the off season, you know, can you not have your favorite carbohydrate before you train and can you still do okay? Right. Could you get a little bit less sleep and still do okay? Right. Can you kind of add a little bit of this variability into the system and, and see how you can do? And I think if that's done in a controlled manner, they realize, Oh wow, I am on the mental side. Like you said, I am more capable than I thought I was. And mm -hmm. I think that in and of itself is probably the biggest win. Plus you're probably building up a little bit more on the physical side too. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, I think man, 2020 is a perfect example yeah. of, <laughs> of, of that just in general. So much happened that we can control. You see not even just not even, um, professional athletes, but people who had their lifestyle disrupted. We'll just say like, fitness people sure. had their lifestyle disrupted and they were like, I can't work out. I don't know what else I'm going to do. Uh, you know, I don't have the stuff I usually use at the home gym. I'm like, have you heard of a fucking push up? Like, <laughs> like there's so there's this huge breadth yeah. of things that you can do just with your body. You can 
read. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, and, and so, you know, when we think about, um, the sort of anti-fragility to me, one of the most anti-fragile things you can do is just to be a learner. Mm-hmm. You look for the opportunity. So when a stressor that you weren't anticipating, especially shows up, and I think emotional challenges are in general, much more difficult than physical yes. challenges. If you, if you can separate the two at all, um, that, athletes or people in general who have a mindset where they look for opportunity inside of hardship, they're much less fragile and they deal with unexpected future, unexpected hardship, um, much more effectively and they tend to adapt much faster. And I think what you're talking about with throwing those little controlled monkey wrenches in the system, those are opportunities for the athlete to build up that kind of resilience. And some of it's personality dependent, right? Yeah. Some people you work with are totally open. Oh, hey, no problem, coach. Cool. Yeah. You know, whatever. I'll, uh, we'll get it done. And some people are like, oh, my God, I can't take <laughs> my favorite supplement. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's a different track. Oh, it, rained, it rained on a day I wasn't expecting. I don't know. How am I going to get my workout in? It's like, hey, like if all your fitness disappears in a day to a week, it wasn't that good to begin with. Yeah. You know, like you hadn't done your homework already. So – you didn't have ownership over that stuff. So I think, like you said, those are there's some really cool opportunities from a professional perspective um, like to build robustness both mentally and physically. And, and again, um, I think breathing can be a, play a really important role, not just in like acute training situations, which there's a whole bunch of cool stuff you can do, but just to help with resilience in general because it helps – shift the framework with which you look at situations because your stress physiology and your stress thinking doesn't grab that monkey that lives inside your brain doesn't go crazy and swing from every branch when you start to control your breathing if you have a breath practice that's independent from your performance work i mean there's great evidence for this that you know it's sort of a meditative practice where you start to go oh wait that line of thinking that I was getting sucked into, <laughs> that wasn't good for me and was only compounding um, the problems that I had in the first place. And I know that was, for me, the unexpected result that I got from, from breath work. You know, I started doing it in, um, in college uh, because I went to a yoga class to meet girls. Yeah. That was my PE credit, right? Good move. And good move, yeah. right? <laughs> fit young women there and if you're a fit young dude it's a good way to find your way or you know find your way and, and, and meet some females and um for me though uh what ended up happening is the instructor was really special she was a super cool lady very direct down to earth but gentle and i was like man this lady has some serious knowledge and it very quickly stopped being about getting a pe credit with cute girls and, and became I need to pay attention. There's a, this is a real teacher. And for about six years, I got obsessed with yoga and kind of gave up some of my other fitness practices to really get into it. And then, yeah, I'm a meathead. So I started <laughs> lifting again, surfing and stuff. And um, I, w- I work with quite a few people in the military. And a guy who I was working with was having a, a ton of trouble, special operations guy, having a t- ton of trouble getting to sleep especially transitioning time zones. And I was yeah. like, man, you know what? That breathing stuff that I used to do 
in yoga, like that really, that used to relax me a lot. And so I, I was like, well, I'll tr give him this stuff and I'll find an app. And I found a free diving practice app. And I was like, hey, man, just do this. And it really worked. And I was like, wow, this really worked for him. And I started using it with other athletes I was working with. Then, you know, when this is the time uh, around where Wim Hof made, started making his first, sure. first started becoming famous. And I did his online course maybe five or six years ago now. And uh, I was like, okay, this, is, this way of doing things is very different from the yoga way of doing things. There has to be somewhere in the middle where all this meets together. And for me, it's always physiology. Like, I tend to ignore the camps and just go to like, mm -hmm. how does this function in the first place? Yeah. Like, regardless of anyone's opinion on how to manipulate it, what's the point of it in the body? And that's what I started to explore, how I met Brian and so on. And uh, once I started getting into my practice to kind of make a long story long, <laughs> I, what I realized is that it just wasn't my sleep, my performance and stuff that was getting better. Is like for me, like my relationships with my loved ones started getting better. I started having more reflection. I would notice when I would get stressed sooner because I would feel like, man, my breath practice, I did the same thing yesterday. Why does it feel harder today? Mm -hmm. Some, something's going on that's affecting me. Did I not get enough sleep? No, I got enough sleep. Did I lift really heavy? No, I didn't lift really heavy. Did I get in an argument with my spouse? I did get an argument with my spouse. <laughs> okay, well, so that stress still affected my ability to do this thing. Mm -hmm. So you start to have this relationship. And uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Emily Hightower, she's a Brazilian coach. One of her things that she says that I love so much is that thoughts are things. Yeah. Right? Thoughts have metabolic consequences. It's not just this little cloud that floats next mm -hmm. to you and goes away. Your thought patterns have real physiological consequence. And we know that sustained psychological stress, you know, that's deleterious to your health over time. Um, but it started giving me this checkpoint every day where I could go, oh, wait a second, man, that's something's off. And I didn't give me all the answers, but it helped me. I just started paying more attention. Oh, and I could get ahead of the curve a little faster before it became something that blew up into a larger problem, whether it was recovery or otherwise. And it's had the same effect for you know, many, many people that we've worked with. Yeah, I think that's like a profound thing I realized a while ago is that your nervous system is very much comparative. That it, if, you've, if you've felt poor your whole life, like you don't know what it feels like to feel better. It's like colorblind. Like I currently don't see in 3D. So if someone's like, oh, well, what does it look like? I don't know. It looks normal. Like, I don't, I don't know any difference. <laughs> I know if I got to try to catch a ball, it may hit me in the face, you know, and certain things I had to, you know, learn. But it's like, I don't know any different because other than just a few seconds of my life, I haven't seen any different. And I remember I started doing some breathing stuff with uh, Andrew Wiles in his early books, like in the mid 90s. And yeah. so um, I started doing that, did it for a while. And so, you know, from there up until maybe five years ago, I just, Started doing breathing practice, would start, stop, start, stop. And for a while, I was thinking that, oh, I'm just going to I'm gonna do less and less every day, right? Because I read too much of probably BJ Fogg stuff of like trying to learn new habits and just make them really small. And there's a lot of really good, I think, truth to that. But I realized the downside was I never felt that much different. And I think that's subconsciously my brain's like, 
oh, wait a minute, you just did 30 seconds of breathing. You didn't feel different. Um, and I was doing a mastermind with uh, Mike Bledsoe several years ago, and we did some Wim Hof breathing, you know, on the beach in Mexico. And I remember laying there going, okay, if I can't like figure out this breathing shit here, like that I paid a lot of money to come to this beautiful location to have someone explain to me and walk me through 30 minutes every day for four days in a row of what to do, then it's probably hopeless. And what I realized was after doing kind of the hyperventilation and then just not being, not having to breathe for like 45 seconds, I was like, oh, holy shit, this is what calm feels like. Oh, wow. And I got here like this is just my second round. It didn't take, you know, four hours to get to this state. And then the light bulb went off and went, oh, now I know why I haven't been doing it because I didn't really think there was a payoff. I couldn't feel any different. And then once I felt that difference, I was like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the that's the whole thing. And you know, like you like you said, you came to the Art of Breath seminar, and one of the major goals of the day, and the way we finish out the day is with you know breath experiments. Yeah, and it really gives you a tangible experience of how breath can change intensity, right? And so, you know, a lot of breath practices, like you said, um, are well known for inducing calm. Um, but if you're sort of non-committal to the, the practice itself, then you don't, you don't reach the feeling that helps you continue the practice. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and so that's why, you know, being in an intensive environment can be really powerful because the environment itself forces you to do the thing enough that you get that sort of initial, initial hit. It's kind of an interesting thing with, you know, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but skill development in in general that way. And this is something that I've been working with, with lately with a lot of athletes around breathing practice is the idea of psychologically committing to the skill, mm-hmm. right? Not just like I did the time, yep, but to psychologically committing to the skill and um, as of late, I've been really getting into uh, traditional archery, which, oh, is, nice. which is a really unforgiving pastime. That's I've noticed I've something heard. about myself is that I like to pick up hobbies that make me feel terrible for a long time. <laughs> so I decided, you know, four years ago, I'm going to do get back into martial arts. I'm going to pick jujitsu, yep. which the first year jujitsu, if anybody's, if you haven't done get it, choked out routinely. Yeah. You're just getting choked out. Yeah. You're getting beat up by people smaller than <laughs> you all the time. And so you're just, you know, you're just getting your ass handed to you on a daily basis. And archery is, is similar in that the smallest details yield uh, large changes, both positive and negative. And I recently took a course called Shot IQ with a gentleman who leads it called uh, Joel Turner. Hmm. And one of the things he does is he talks about a closed loops cognitive system for your draw. And what that means is leaving nothing up to automatic habit during the mm. shot process. So draw back and aim, get it done, watch it to keep it. Here we go back, 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 back. And you're literally talking yourself through each step because you don't want to leave that to automaticity where such a fine detail can make the difference, especially if you're talking about taking the life of an animal. That's yeah. really important, right? Um, 
And so this has made me really reflect on, for me, the way athletes come to breathing, because breathing can be a difficult skill because people aren't sure what to feel for, right? It's not like you do a bicep curl and you're like, well, there, my that's that, that burning, that's my bicep. <laughs> Got it. Your diaphragm is really deep and to feel that motion can be tough. And so with athletes, they just kind of go, they just yeah. kind of get her done in the way they've always got her done. And so what I, like, for example, I was working with a couple of athletes this morning doing some training on the beach. And I noticed, like, I was saying, hey, we're going to breathe deeper. I really want you to push air out because we're trying to work on uh, recovery strategies after intense work. And I was like, great, you know, nice job, you guys. We just did a shitload of kettlebell swings. I could not hear you in your recovery breathing. Like, I couldn't hear you breathe. And I was like, you know, when you move a lot of air <laughs> fast, it's loud. Yeah. And I was like, if I can't hear you, you're not committing to the action of breathing. And so you're going to get a limited feeling, like you said, right? So then you're going to be less likely to continue to develop the skill. So you have to psychologically commit at least for some period of time to the actual skill of the thing so that you can get the feeling that will allow you to tap back into the thing, right? So it's an interesting feedback loop um, that happens in your central nervous system where we function on comparative feel, like you just said. So really important point. Yeah, it's like uh, the best, there's all sorts of different models for how people learn, but I think my favorite is just the four stages. I think it was originally attributed to Maslow, but it may be somebody else. And what you're practicing there is basically a conscious competence, right? You don't have the skill at an unconscious level yet, but left to your own devices to try to go unconscious, not think about it, it's kind of a disaster because you don't have that skill. So you have to go through kind of the conscious competent phase where you have to think about each thing. You have to pay attention to feeling. You have to pay attention to what sensations come up. And the nice part of I would imagine about something like archery or those types of sports, it's easier to iterate because you have the end goal. Oh, wow, I didn't even hit the hay bale. Oh, that was horrible. Oh, look, I hit the bullseye. Oh, I must have done something right, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you There's can iterate really faster. Exactly, the iterations are really fast. And let me tell you, 30 to 50 arrows a day, you start to you start to see that. And um, I think, you know, Things like breathing can be a little bit more complex because the, it's a little bit more, the feeling's a little bit more subtle, mm -hmm. unless you give yourself acute targets. And that's why with the art of breath, we, even though ultimately it's not only about performance, we use performance as a lens because when you make people work hard, they breathe harder. Yep. And so making them work hard while controlling their breath creates a very intense experience that they won't forget and will more easily be able to replicate, right? But that and that experience allows you to tap into more and more subtle layers of, of behavior, you know, just like, just like anything else, for sure, any other skill that you've ever developed. Yeah, one of my buy-ins that I did a lot, especially after your course, I even did a lot more, um, was kind of using the system of gearing so i would tell people okay i want you to breathe in and out through your nose do this type of cardiovascular exercise or okay we're going to do more of a higher uh 
intensity. So I want you to breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your mouth. So I would purposely try to put them in specific levels based off the stuff you guys were teaching. And what I found was my early on-ramp was, one, I have clients pay me a lot of money. And then two, once they're bought in, I'm like, okay, you're going to do the rower and you're going to send me your heart rate. You're going to send me all your power data, which is just synced to an app. So I, I'll know where you're at from a performance level. And then you only breathe in and out through your nose. And especially with some really CrossFit athletes I worked with, I, I started doing that because I'm like, God, how do I get these guys and gals just to not beat the tar out of themselves like every day? Mm -hmm. You know, like how do I give them something that's really hard? It feels hard, but it's actually making them a little bit better and they're not going to self implode themselves in the process. <laughs> so my go-to was get on the rower, put your heart rate strap on, send me all your data, only breathe in and out through your nose and do a 5k. And the first couple of athletes I had do that, he's like, this is horrible. Like his max heart rate was like 110. He's like, I hate you. It feels like I'm drowning in air. <laughs> that's exactly. That's exactly right. That's CO2, right? Yeah. That's, that's that CO2 response. And, you know, I think, I think one of the, one of the misnomers athletes have is if you work really hard, everything you want will come true. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you have to work really hard in the right way. And you're more likely to get closer to where you want. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and, and I think that's where, you know, aerobic stuff comes in. When you see how many athletes try to develop an aerobic base, it's misplaced precision oftentimes. Right. Uh, and they think, uh, people, and this is coaches as well, that just because you do something longer and lower, that means you're going to have the most efficient result um, aerobically. But having an efficient aerobic system doesn't just mean air comes in. As long as my heart rate's low, everything's all cool. You have to get that oxygen into the system and deliver it to muscles that need it. Mm-hmm. That's actually, and the higher the percentage of the air that goes in, and that's where the moxie um, come right comes back comes back in. Right. How much of that oxygen is actually actually in the tissue? Yeah, right? a lot of people never take that part of the equation into it into account. And an important component of that is your ability to tolerate carbon dioxide because there's an inverse relationship in the tissue at the tissue level between carbon dioxide and oxygen, and carbon dioxide essentially bumps oxygen off of hemoglobin and then it gets released in the mitochondria where it creates ATP blah 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 right well co2 is also the signal to your brain to breathe more and so one way i like to explain it is it's kind of like a fire alarm inside of a school mm. except for most people it, the fire alarm gets pulled when you light a match <laughs> not, <laughs> not when there's yeah. an actual classroom on fire and so the sig and the signal comes on early for a reason because that system is predictive. It doesn't want to wait right. until your pH is really fucked up yeah. before it asks you to yeah. make an adjustment. It's kind of like uh, proprioceptors in your muscles. It puts the brakes on way before you're going to do tissue damage, right? But if it comes on too soon all the time, 
you don't have good tissue extensibility either, right? And so when you develop CO2 tolerance, you become a lot more truly aware of where that range is. And as a result, you breathe less, you allow more carbon dioxide to remain in the system and better release oxygen. So that's the sort of physiological justification for reduced breathing, like you were saying, nasal breathing on a row or on a 5K. Oh, it feels miserable. Yeah, because the fire alarm's getting pulled inside your brain, even though you're not working that hard. You don't know how to deal with that byproduct of CO2. And what ends up happening is that um, athletes over time become far more tolerant of that signal and then they maintain a work pace that actually allows their engine to start truly developing. And many athletes that we've seen are spending a lot, uh, a much higher percentage of their work time in lactate, mm -hmm. in anaerobic lactate systems than they realize. And it, it comes with a very high cost because their body will shift into that anaerobic lactate system and have all this free-floating hydrogen and they wonder why they bonk and constantly have to be replacing sugar and it's because they're not fat they're not aerobically fat adapted um, in the way that they the way that they thought they were and one of the easiest ways to do that is to start training your aerobic system with your mouth shut and then obviously of course appropriately fuel your system so um, I'm sure you're well aware how horribly sugar addicted many athletes are um even if they don't realize like how dependent they are on constantly re replenishing muscle glycogen because they spend so much time uh sort of unaware of that that lactate overdrive right yeah that's i think a good point because uh, i got this from my buddy luke lehman too that he was even doing just lactate tests on some athletes at rest and so I started looking into this too, and some of them were so far on that glycolytic spectrum that at rest, they're just eating through a ton of carbohydrates. They're actually spinning off lactate and hydrogen ions, and this is before <laughs> any work. And they go like, well, what is their work capacity? It's like, it's utterly atrocious. Like, how do you feel? They're like, I feel like shit all the time, right? Because yeah. in essence, your engine is like being redlined. And you're like still sitting in the driveway, <laughs> you know, it's like you got some issues, boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, because athletes generally, whether you're a recreational athlete or a high level athlete, people who pursue athletics in general tend to be more motivated, driven, a type folks who, you know, want to get after it. And just like I said earlier, like, well, if I just keep working hard, it'll get better. Yeah. You know, but it's like showing up for work, but to the wrong office. Yeah. Like, man, I've been, working, I've been working hard for 10 years. Like, how come I don't have a raise? It's like, well, you've been going to the wrong job. Yeah. You know, you don't actually work here, but no one ever told you. Yeah. It reminds <laughs> me of the, I'm old enough to, you probably remember Seinfeld, uh, where Kramer goes into this office and then he gets fired and they're like, well, why are you firing me? He's like, you know, this is really hard because you don't even really work here. You just like showed up and started working one day. He's like, yeah. It's like, so how can I get fired? <laughs> Doesn't it feel weird to be, to remember Seinfeld and know that that makes you older? Yeah. Yeah. I figured this out teaching, especially when I was teaching more in person that 
I'm like, oh my god, like students don't even know what it is. I'm like, sign like you, you don't even like half the students like no idea. I was like, oh, oh, yeah. oh my gosh, this is yeah. crazy. <laughs> That's for me, like Soundgarden. People are like, oh, yeah. they're, class- they're classic, and I'm like, classic. classic. Oh, my, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, I'm in trouble. Soundgarden's classic. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like. I remember being a kid and my dad listening to, you know, the Zeppelin and stuff like that. And I still love that music. I mean, like, oh, this is classic rock to me. And to my dad, that was just rock. Yeah. (laughs) You know, now it's the same thing. It's like, oh, this is classic, like hip hop that I listen to also. It's like, oh, that's classic. Oh, hey, man, that that Notorious B.I.G. album, man, that's classic. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my God, this came out when I was a senior in high school, you know. Yeah, like early (laughs) public enemy and stuff. (laughs) Exactly, that's good stuff. Um, But, yeah, I I think that, you know, there's there's so much room for improvement on on these energy system fronts, and I don't think that um, people realize the potential in athletics and, and what the price is when you live in that lactate system all yeah. the time and then just for health, how, what kind of Oof. back loop that sets up. If you're just a normal person who's trying to be healthy to have that kind of dysfunctional relationship with your, sh- your blood sugar yep. up and down up that yo-yo all the time. And you know, an interesting personal experiment that I think you'll, you'll find kind of cool is, you know, it's like I mentioned my, favorite pastime is Brazilian jiu-jitsu and um I don't allow myself prior to jiu-jitsu to um you know I go through cycles of this but right now I'm in a cycle where I don't allow myself to front load with carbohydrate hmm. for jiu-jitsu I'll front load with some like uh, a little bit of fat okay yeah um and, and I mean of course some things that have that in there carbohydrate too yeah, yeah. sugar added but you know it's it's minute um but i might have like a little bit of uh like real yogurt with peanut butter and that'll be it and i'm like hey you got it like i'm gonna teach this machine hey you're gonna be efficient with fat we're gonna keep it nasal through the whole class we're gonna keep it nasal as much as possible and i'm gonna teach this machine hey you gotta be good at burning burning fat as, as your primary resource and then when i get home especially if it was really intense you know i'll replenish that that glycogen i'll feel the the boom oh yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah. i'll age myself again but the sound that i hear in my head (laughs) is this this the on the death star one (laughs) is turning off the tractor beam i'm like okay i need some sugar like i need to put some carbohydrate in this thing um but yeah i think it's an important important thing to be flexible with because sometimes you're going to have to work really hard when sugar is not available. Yeah. Right. Like, Oh yeah. In nature, that was like a, like a delicacy to have in most of the world, unless you were close to the equator. Right. Most of the world had to wait for a very short window in the season for a high carbohydrate availability um, unless you live in an equatorial environment and, and for the rest of us, you know, like for me, I'm mostly, you know, Irish and like Franco, Franco German and, and English. And most of that work, most of that, those people, they were living off of like ta- tallow and yeah. you know, <laughs> like, 
Uh, and, and so it's a, I think it's a really important thing to be able to, to do. And there's the nutritional component and then there's the respiratory slash work component. And, you know, even if you're not an athlete, Hey, if you're just somebody who likes to go for a walk or a jog, you can start keeping your mouth shut while you do that stuff. And it'll have massive impact on the way that you function, the way that you feel. Cool. As we wrap up here, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, yes, sir. Yeah. In the flex diet, that's like the big conundrum I had was how do you put it into a system to train it? So what I came up with is you have like a stress and a distress, right? So a stress training is if I'm doing a high intensity training, I'm going to match carbohydrate intake to what I'm actually burning because I want to try to limit some of that stress. But I don't want to do that all the time, 100% of the time, right? There's times I may want to do a distress session on purpose. So I may enter a high intensity type session on either low liver glycogen or you can do stuff like deplete out some muscle glycogen there's different levels you can go and do now your stress level is going to be a lot higher but there's some fascinating science on how your body adapts in terms of enzymatic changes and how it starts upregulating the system more and so yeah i think there's a time and a place for both that just depends upon again looking at the whole you know year view or the the high level view of what you're trying to do Agreed. That's really cool stuff and uh, something that I would like to invest more personal time in, in seeing some of that some of that science. Maybe that's something we can talk about. Yeah, yeah. we'll send it to you. Uh, two quick questions. For someone listening to this and they're like, uh, I don't know, a bunch of mumbo-jumbo type stuff, Like, what did you <laughs> experience as the best sort of on-ramp for them to start kind of a breathing practice? Obviously, I recommend that they go to your course and take some of the things you have on your website, but something that you find in your experience as this is a pretty good place for them to start for most people? Um, well, first of all is when you're doing stuff, whether it's training or you're just doing a normal health activity, keep your mouth closed. Mm. That's the, to start emphasizing nasal breathing. That's sort of easy part. Like we'll just say a sure. B B is if you go to our new website, which is shiftadapt.com, and you go to breath work, there's a free breathwork series. Nice. So there, you don't have to pay anything. I think we just ask for your email address. And then you go in and there's four videos with my partner, Brian McKenzie. And what Brian takes you through, I think in total, it's like it asks you for 10, 10 minutes of your time. And it gives you some cool things. Like we actually have an actual breath assessment. Yep, I've used that a lot actually. Right? Yeah. So you give a breath assessment. You can start to manipulate your mechanics. And it's really simple. You don't need special knowledge or special tools or anything. Cool. Awesome. And then I heard you've uh, taken, uh, speaking of beating the crap out of yourself, you've tried to take up the sport of kiteboarding. I have tried <laughs> it a little. Let me tell you what, it, because I grew up surfing and skating. Yeah. The um, the wakeboarding component of that process was the easiest part. Like oh, once yeah. I once yeah. I was like, so you got the board How do you skills. stand up? Yeah. Okay, I can stand up, and then I was like, cool, I can cut. What people don't realize is the really really hard part, <laughs> especially if you have boarding experience, is the kite. Yes. Because calling that thing a kite is a trick. <laughs> it's a wing. It's a wing, and you fly. It is. Bare, it's only a kite because it's attached to you by string. <laughs> Other than that, it's a flying vehicle. And let me tell you what, um, it, I respect everybody who does that. It's a really fun and, man, that was, like, I could see myself 
really getting hooked on that. Oh, yeah. Um, because you're interacting with two elements simultaneously. You're interacting with water and wind at the same time, and you're managing both simultaneously. There's a lot of feel. Your mind, you can't, you're not like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. There's, you have to kind of, there's a real feel to the whole thing. Um, but I did get Superman slammed. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a handful of times uh, learning the kite. Where you know they were like, you know, pull back, pull, you know, or let the break out, let the break yep, out, let like, out. Yeah, wham! <laughs> you know, and I was like, okay, uh, Mother Nature wins again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's super fun. I recommend everyone to take a lesson and and to do it. But it's exactly what you said. It's like until you've tried it, like no one understands like how responsive and touchy flying a kite actually is. Which is a good thing because, you know, like most things, it's a little bit harder to learn up front. It's probably, you know, tons of progression and everything else. Um, but it's just so, it's so weird. And then you think about, oh, now I have to go on a board. I'm attached to a kite. Now I got to go left. Now I got to go right. And I got to go upwind. I got to go downwind. There's like four things eventually you have to try to, you know, figure out. And then once you get a little better at that, you can try sending the kite and flying through the air and hopefully landing and not getting dropped out of the sky like a sack of potatoes and <laughs> yeah. watching people who are really good at it is really fun and anybody who's listening to this if you're not really familiar with the sport just you look it up on youtube and there's a lot of different variations of kiteboarding yeah. kite surfing there's people who big wave kite yeah, like so there's some there's some crazy <laughs> people who go full full send on kites and then you, like I said, you realize very quickly, oh, I'm attached by wire to a wing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, of course, another crazy thing that humans do. <laughs> yeah, it's super fun. I, I recommend it. I'm I'm in the process of trying to learn how to foil now and then trying to use a surfboard. So super 30-second story. I went out to Hood River, uh, bought a surfboard because I wanted one forever. Only ever ridden a surfboard once on a kite. And I'm one of these idiots that's like, I'll teach myself how to surf, but I'll do it using a kite. Because in my brain, I'm like, if I can get good enough on the board and flat water, if I get into smaller waves, I can use the kite to bring me into the waves. So I can get a lot more reps in, in practice, in theory. The big downside is obviously you figured out there's a lot more shit to go wrong. So anyway, I'm out riding around. <laughs> it's just flat water in Hood River. I'm doing pretty good. And all of a sudden, I'm like, ah, I'm going to go a little bit further out. And, you know, this will be all right. I kind of got it figured out. I can't turn around, but I can ride. And all of a sudden, the safety phoom, gets like pulled on my kite. So the kite gets flagged, falls out of the sky, basically. Couldn't get it back up. And what happened was I got off the surfboard somehow, and it came up, and it actually hit the safety on my line. And so my surfboard actually popped the safety on my kite. And I got dragged. <laughs> it happened behind an island, so I'm in a wind shadow. I got dragged through a bed of seaweed for an hour and 20 minutes trying to self-rescue and I'd have oh, a wow. guy on a, a jet ski come out and pick me up at the end of the day and drag me <laughs> out of the water. <laughs> yeah, Mother Nature wins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, surfing is a whole. You know, when you're not strapped into the board. Yeah. Like if, you, if somebody's never surfed before, you like you watch and you go, "Oh, hey, that looks pretty cool. That's fun." And Sword. then you go out, you try it, <laughs> and you go, "How the hell are their feet on this board still?" Like there's yeah. a there's a whole motion of responsiveness with your body, um, and you realize like just for lack of a better expression, like how intelligent surfers' ankles are. Oh, 
yeah. and how much constant redistribution of weight is happening, um, even in small waves. And then you talk about these folks who are in large surf. It's like, I don't even, I don't honestly, I don't know how they do it. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I realized that how lazy I got on a kiteboard where you're kind of just strapped into. Um, I'm like, oh, wow. Now where you can move your feet around. I have little sky hooks to kind of help keep my feet in a certain area. But, yeah, definitely different. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for all your time today. Where can uh, people find more about you? I know you mentioned the website there. Is that probably the best place in the newsletter? Yeah, so you can go to uh, shiftadapt.com. Um, you can look us up on the Instagram um, at shift underscore adapt and you can find me uh, at prepare to perform on instagram cool awesome and do you do any in-person training in your area there still or just mostly online stuff right now i do i do a bit um most of what i do in person now is uh i keep it to the interesting and the weird How yeah about that? <laughs> that's <Right>? okay <laughs> so yeah if you got something that's pretty kooky or <laughs> they're super high like super high stakes, like whether it's health high stakes or performance high stakes, then that usually, uh, piques my, piques my interest for sure. But a lot of my work is, uh, virtual for the time being. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much today, Rob. I really appreciate it. All your time and all your knowledge. Thanks again. Yes, sir. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the invite. Cool. Thank you, sir. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. We ran a little bit over there, but thank you so much for your time and sharing all your knowledge and wisdom there. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again for, uh, for asking me. And, you know, I think it's, uh, there's some, there's some really cool things to be, to be learned about it. And, you know, I think it goes really well with the flex diet, um, way of thinking for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the next course I'm doing is on physiologic flexibility. So once I get it done, I'll send it over to you. Cause I'm like, yeah, that'd be awesome. I think, there's a lot of really good stuff in breathwork. There's a lot of good stuff in all these areas. But for me, I'm like, okay, how does it all like fit together? And similar to you, it's like, I just go back to physiology. And I was going to do the course initially two and a half years ago. I was talking to Ryan Lee about it when I did the flex diet. And he's like, wait a minute, you have a level two, like already mapped out and everything. I'm like, oh yeah, I've been working on it for like three years already. He's like, do not release that course. I'm like, well, why not? He's like, just do one course first, get that going, like sell that and then do another course later at some time. But during that time, like all these other things have become a lot more, I guess, sexy and more trending now too. So I think people are kind of looking for it. for it and ready for yep. a little bit more information too. So, yeah, I, I agree. That's, we ha we've had an outline for uh, art of breath one Oh two yeah. for a year, for years. And we were like, something's always kind of like come up or like, Oh, we're going to wait. And it's kind of been a blessing because we've realized like it's just we've gotten better at delivering our message, our information. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? Now when I actually sit down and do this and record the video, like it'll be much more clear, concise steps because we have like three and a half years of questions and investigation yeah, yeah. and trials with the with the original information so much that we're going to audit the level one before we put the level two out so um yeah when that when that comes to uh comes to fruition i'll, I'll let i'll let you know yeah yeah sure awesome well thank you so much awesome. man we'll be yes, in sir. touch thank take, you. Care. take care bye-bye hey thank you so much for listening to this podcast i really appreciate it 
Thank you so much to Rob for his time today and sharing all of his knowledge. I always love whenever I get to chat with him. Uh, be sure to check out his site, which is shiftadapt.com. Uh, we will place a link here so you can get on to their newsletter. Again, they've got some really great stuff. Um, I have been using their evaluation that they use, and it's been super helpful with uh, different athletes and everyone that, that I train. So thanks again to Rob. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by theflexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T. If you want to learn the eight different interventions for recovery and nutrition, go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com, and you'll be able to get on the wait list there. And as soon as it's open again, you'll be one of the first people to enroll. So thanks again for listening to this podcast. I really appreciate it. If you have any feedback for me, uh, please let me know and any reviews, post them up on uh, iTunes or whatever your favorite site is. We always go through and read all the reviews. Again, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Talk to you again soon.